You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Well, hello, Gordon. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am fantastic. So, Gordon, for those who haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and give the listeners a glimpse of what we might be talking about today. My name is Dr. Gordon Vanskoy. I am an entrepreneur uh, who came from a blue-collar family, uh, one of those individuals that was the first to go to college, went to the University of Pittsburgh, always been associated with University of Pittsburgh as a faculty, actually, for the last 34 years. But throughout that career of being a faculty member, I was also started, I believe, eight businesses. The most recent one is probably the reason why you had invited me to be part of this, was actually Panther Rare. Panther Rare, we built it. It grew at an incredible trajectory, um, actually started a, a, a new segment of the industry, and um, we actually passed it on to a company called Centene in December of this year. But as part of that process, we did not divest another company that I started and I'm also CEO of. Uh, which is called Rare Med, and that's really where I'm focusing most of my attention. My entire career for the last, uh, since 2011, has been uh, dedicated to helping patients with rare diseases um, find these extraordinary medications. Gordon, so I'm listening to you and I say, boy, that guy's smart. He sold a business, yet he still has a business doing the same thing. Where am I <laughs> off there? Well, actually, there are different parts of the business. Um, Panther Rare is a, I mean, it was started as a specialty pharmacy, but it became so specialized. Um, we actually created a, a new sub-segment of the industry called Rare Pharmacy. Um, and its primary responsibility was um, we entered into these unique relationships with these small emerging biopharma companies hmm. that have, you, you know, what, these aren't the Pfizer's, the Amgen's, um, the Genentech's of the world. What we're seeing in the FDA pipeline is innovations coming from these small to mid-sized companies that have really delved into um, understanding uh, gene mapping and understanding these very small entities that are intended for patients with rare diseases. And um, that's really, Panther does two things. It really um, links these manufacturers with the patients. So we are the ones responsible for providing drugs for patients all over the country. Um, and two, uh, not only do we provide the drug, um, but we also provide some services around that drug and making sure that the patients are healthy because um, these individuals go many miles to get diagnosed, but then they go home. So we're kind of a bridge to their uh, treatment, um, not only in terms of their drug, but a link to their specialist. So that's Panther. And that, that entity, because we, uh, you know, managed the drug, um, was a pharmacy. But while we were building and growing Panther, we found out that Panther's primary business model of developing these exclusive relationships with these biopharma manufacturers some of the manufacturers wanted not just one choice, but may have two or three. Two or three choices of what? Specialty pharmacies. Gotcha. So not just one. So they wanted more than just going with Panther. In the rare sector, there was a, 
uh, industry created, which was called a pharmacy hub. And the hub basically is an entity that receives the prescriptions um, and basically make sure that the patients um, have insurance, make sure that they can afford the drug, find resources for them. Then we um, basically separate the prescriptions and send them to the various specialty pharmacies, um, which we call a clean script. Um, and that specialty pharmacy or rare pharmacy then fills the prescription and sends it to the patient. So rare med um, provides those pharmacy hub and extended services. So think of a spoken wheel. Panther Rare being the one pharmacy and the best pharmacy, of mm -hmm. course, but also you're a hub for other rare pharmacies. Now, let me ask you this then, Gordon, why would somebody want to go to a different pharmacy and not just Panther Rare? Is it because it's more in their area or why did these manufacturers want to go with other ones than just say the one and only Panther Rare? You, you know, it, it's a function of time and, um, you know, as first of all, Panther just started in 2011 and, uh, you know, we got our big break in 2014 in the rare market. So we're, I mean, it was a relatively new entity. So as manufacturers, many of them wanted that new innovative approach, but some of them, you know, there's a lot of other pharmacy, other national pharmacies that are, that are out there. And they took a little more conservative approach and said, you know, hey, let's let's try Panther, but let's try these others. Um, so they just wanted to give, uh, you know, their patients and prescribers options. And our goal wasn't to look at, you know, creating a monopoly. It was to, to, to try to create something where, you know, we, we fit every business model out there. And that's why the two were done. But it's interesting, the more we go along, um, the more people become very comfortable with, you know, the exclusive model and, and that's all good. When you talk about these new manufacturers popping up, these biomeds and stuff, does any of that have to do with the new ways that computers are used for tests? Do you hear about almost like these garage, I know they aren't actually made in a garage, but these smaller companies, have computers helped that? Or if not, why are there so many small ones, small compared to the big boys? Yeah, and I think that goes back to, quite frankly, the FDA. Um, you know, the federal government, um, as part of the Orphan Drug Act, um, created financial incentives for entities to actually do research in the rare segment. Think about this rare segment, Mike, as, you know, there are over 7,000 rare diseases, right? Um, but only 5% of them have a treatment. So if a disease, if you put them all in the same bucket, okay, these 7,000, rare diseases would be as common as diabetes, okay? But there are these small pockets, I mean, and sometimes it's only hundreds of patients in this country, sometimes it's thousands, but it's these small pockets and this incentive that the FDA um, created um, actually stimulated research and the research um, gave advantages to the manufacturer, both in terms of patent life for protection, as well as giving them, you know, if they're in the pediatric sector, these vouchers, which actually accelerates their approval, hmm. or they can actually tell this, this take this voucher um, and actually sell it to another manufacturer and, and get a lot of money for that. 
so it actually can financially capitalize the, the organization. But it was really the government's intent to try to help patients with rare diseases. So what we saw happen is that this, you know, this act and, and some of the subsequent legislation caused the FDA pipeline of new drugs to be filled with these new rare, that we call them orphan drugs. Um, and these orphan drugs, um, because it was, you know, financially more advantageous and, you know, we, we could actually do the research with them, um, we saw a plethora and actually, you know, a significant percentage of the FDA pipeline are orphan drugs now. And yes, it is because of computers to an extent. It's also due to gene mapping. It's due to um, understanding genetics. We started a long time ago with these big molecules that we would find from natural sources like aspirin. Yes. You know, from a willow uh, tree. The bark of a willow tree. Exactly. Now we have the science and sophistication to know that these, these targeted molecules um, actually can be safer and more effective because we know exactly what patient is opportune for this and what disease works. So it ends up being a safer, more effective approach to treating these patients than just trying a cholesterol drug in millions and millions of patients and seeing which ones, determining which ones work. Why the extra speed for children's medicine? Is it the heartstrings or is there a reason that children get quicker access? Well, it, it's not just they get quicker access. It, it, I think that it was an underserved population for a long period of time. And, and so they said, you know, let, let's try to fix that. Um, so 50% of orphan drugs now are in the pediatric realm and 50% are now in the uh, adult realm. So it was just trying to correct a problem. And that's why, you know, you put money associated with it. Yeah. Suddenly the research dollars follow. How do you ask this in a way that doesn't tear your heart out? But basically, are some of these diseases for the young children that they die before the disease can even be so old? I mean, like everybody dies before two years old, and thus there are no older people with this. Exactly. And in fact, our, you know, our, the first orphan drug that actually helped launch Panther was designated for a, a disease where these babies, if they made it through childbirth, mm. um, 80% of them would die before year one. Wow. And in fact, they're born without, on x-ray, you can't even see a skeleton. Wow. Because they're lacking an enzyme that calcifies the bone and makes the bone hard. Mm. So the majority of them would just die. And, and it, it was just, you're right. They, you know, a lot of these patients that, you know, that were born with this in the pediatric, that had the dominant gene. Yeah. Um, never made it. Now we know, based upon understanding the disease and proper diagnosis, um, we can actually allow them to have a normal life. Wow. So the government started pressing this a little bit further in about what year? Well, the uh, Pediatric Voucher Act, uh, which again, on the on the children's side, you know, was right around 2012. Okay. And then you saw that coming by starting this in 2011, Panther Rare? Actually, yeah. And the reason why I saw it coming is, is there was a professor at Duke um, who actually was one of the biggest advocates of trying to get children um, access to drugs where they, they were just 
um, did not have access wow. before. And this professor um, actually petitioned con Congress, and he was the reason for the Pediatric Voucher Act. The Orphan Drug Act had been there for years. Um, so there were some incentives, but the Voucher Act actually provided more incentives. And so, you know, the rest is history. And now we have, um, again, still only about 5% of these, uh, these incredibly terrible diseases, um, only 5% have a treatment. But we're doing, but we're making progress. And Gordon, you had your ear to that, though, with the professor. Did you know him personally? I didn't, believe it or not. My son was getting his MBA at Duke and, uh, you know, he was telling me about this incredible professor he had. And um, back then when we started Panther, um, I realized it would be very, very difficult to try to compete with the big guys um, in traditional specialty pharmacy. What were you doing like in 2009, like two years before you even opened up Panther? I knew you were a pharmacist, but did you have a pharmacy ever or? Yeah, oh, well... <laughs> We no, I never owned quote unquote my own pharmacy. Um, I was a faculty member in the school of pharmacy. Gotcha. Uh, for thirty some years, and was actually involved with the very first specialty pharmacy in the country back in the late eighties. Wow. This company, this company called Statlanders out of Pittsburgh. Um, but to answer your question directly, let's say in two thousand nine, um, I actually owned a company that did um, medical education. Gotcha. Um, and we were teaching doctors um, the appropriate way to use medications. So I was in different areas. So walk me through that where your son says, hey, dad, here's this idea. Should we do this, do that? Was it kind of like it came together with that information or was that a freak that it happened right before that? Both of my sons were strictly business in nature. Okay, that was their focus. And, you know, many times me being in medicine, we would talk about the business of medicines quite often. You know, what was unique about that? And it just happened over dinner that, you know, he mentioned this and I was trying to find a niche for Panther where we could create something new. So that's when, uh, you know, the idea came and, you know, we had to, we had to create still a traditional specialty pharmacy that wasn't doing orphan drugs for three or four years prior to our first break. Why did you get into that though? Why did you get into specialty before this big break came along? Specialties have always been, you know, in my blood. We were involved in that first specialty pharmacy back in... Um, in the 80s. In the late 80s, yeah. And actually, I published the first paper that was published on specialty pharmacy. Really? And that was, that was published in 2000. You're in a conversation with the average Joe, and they say, Gordon, what do you mean specialty? I think the pharmacy listeners have an idea, but how would you capture that for the average person, what specialty is? You know, specialty are expensive medications that have unique requirements, either, um, you know, the dosing of them, you know, the adverse effect profile of them, um, but it, the thing that they all have in common, they're expensive. So think of drugs like drugs on television, uh, you know, the drugs that we see all the time for rheumatoid arthritis yeah. or for Crohn's disease yeah. or for... Um, you know, that's think of those drugs um, as specialty drugs, not your drugs for high cholesterol, sure. or hypertension or headache or things like that. A lot of the pharmacists think that the PBMs kind of call the shots and run the world. 
in my mind, I'm thinking specialty. I'm thinking PBMs probably have a part in this. And I'm guessing that one is that there's maybe less waste because you guys handle these all the time. And secondly, there's maybe financial things. How did the specialty market come up knowing that probably the insurances, I'm guessing, had a lot to do with this? And maybe I'm wrong. No, you're, you're right. Um, you know, the PBMs do have a big part of it. And that's what, you know, the David and Goliath, when we started Statlanders, the country's first specialty, um, it ultimately sold to CVS. Um, so that, you know, that became a significant part of CVS's approach. And while that, when we made that sale, also uh, a credo and um, Walgreens and others were realizing that in the FDA pipeline weren't just your traditional drugs that you find at your local pharmacy. These drugs are expensive to, to inventory. They were difficult to find. So there, a different distribution model was needed, and that's what the specialty distribution model was created for. But you're right, the PBMs, it became such commonplace, though, that when we sold Statlanders uh, back years ago, um, specialty wasn't special anymore. It became almost like a mail order pharmacy. It was all about efficiency. It was all about making money, if you would. And that's when I left the industry. I left specialty pharmacy, God, um, decades ago, uh, because quite frankly, that wasn't what uh, I was interested in. But when we got back into rare, um, we brought specialty back because it was not just about you know, the efficiency was about getting people appropriate insurance coverage. It was about um, teaching them how to use their Medicaid. It was about linking with their physicians. It was much more complicated than just mailing a product out. It's almost like there was specialty, but then the big guys got their hands on things and then specialty, you start cutting corners and things. And then you almost have to say like, okay, they're specialty, but now we're specialty, specialty, and then right, and and then you exactly. say, well, if you were specialty, specialty, what would need specialty, specialty, and that would maybe be the rare drugs because those are the ones that are really exactly. are special. Exactly, and think about forty percent of the rare drugs are cancer drugs. Okay, so that's a whole sector of these, uh, you know, these life-saving drugs that you don't get from your local pharmacy, right? Right. Um, and that's where, you know, where we came in, not only on the oncology side, but also on, you know, the 60% of non-cancer um, rare diseases. What would you call those, like genetic things? Or are some flukes? Well, most of them have some genetic um, component to them. There's no question about that. And, and that I would say the majority of them do. And it's interesting when you identify if somebody gets diagnosed in a family with one of these rare diseases, you actually, they, they'll actually do, um, you know, they'll go and genetically test every member of the family because many, many times they'll find that generations ago, somebody died or had a disease that they couldn't diagnose. Yes. And now the person knows so that their offspring, they, they now know that carry this risk and now we have an option to, to manage them. Are any of those drugs given in utero? No, no, no. Not, none yet. No. They're all after. They're all, they're all after. Yeah. Because you don't, we, we haven't got to the point in terms of sophistication to know if in utero, 
um, that that child is uh, is carrying the dominant or recessive or carrying it at all. When the baby's finally born, then most of these are going to be not just like here's a shot and you're done, or are a lot of it like repeat drip stuff. Well, you know the one disease state that I talked to you about. Um, where the babies are basically born with that, with a soft skeleton, right? Um, they've got to take this enzyme the rest of their life. Oh, and uh, and and here's the here's the complexity. When we would the drug itself uh, is it, you have to ship it cold chain, so you get it you know between at a you know four and eight degrees, okay, and it has to actually go to the patient, you know, at that same temperature. Gotcha. Um, so it's not like you can just ship it with UPS or FedEx in a regular box and everything's fine. So it, it's a very, you know, it's an injectable drug. Um, it's injected three to four times a week. Um, we have to teach the, the parents how to, how to do the injections. And then as the baby grows, they require more of the drug because it's weight-based. So we have to do all, you know, constantly changing those. And then once the baby, think about it when, you know, so if we started in 2015 with this drug, you know, those maybe a baby that was one year old is now six years old um, and they will need it the rest of their life. Or in our city, there's IV center or something like that. It's not quite a hospital, but it's like an, what would you call that? Injection something or I forget the word infusion site or so on. Yeah. Do they yeah. ever have the drugs go there or is yours mainly house-based? Ours are mainly house-based um, and, and they're not all injectable. Um, ours are mainly house-based where, you know, sometimes we'll send a nurse into the home and actually do the injection. Sometimes we would um, ship it to the house, teach the family if it's a, you know, sub-Q injection and, and the family, you know, does it then. But to get back to your former point about, well, do the, is it a one-time shot? The really, really exciting thing that's on the horizon is called gene therapy. And gene therapy, it, the hope of it is, is that actually you can inject what's called a CRISPR into a patient and, and, and you can actually modify their genetic structure. And, you know, the hope is for cures. You know, we probably have three or four gene therapies that are out in the market. They haven't come out as fast as we hoped. Uh, one is for a certain type of blindness and, and there, there are several others. But, you know, the problem with these that we're we're dealing with is it costs so much to develop these drugs and for a one time or a short course of therapy the the folks who created it have to recover their their cost with it so they're millions of dollars some of them for a for a you know maybe a one-shot deal is that where you'd say a good society takes care of the most needy if you did like an insurance thing like car insurance they would say no we're not going to pay for this let so many people die because it would cost this much more to do this to the cars or something like that you know the car manufacturers and all this is this something though where the government says yeah it saves a life or two but we're going to spend extraordinarily amounts of money to do this or who pays for this still the insurance companies now okay um, and one of the insurance companies is the government. Okay, think about Medicare and Medicaid. Medicaid primarily for the babies. But he here's the unique thing about this. If you can cure somebody of a devastating disease, maybe you're saving a lifetime of hospitalizations. The direct costs associated with some of these devastating diseases can eclipse what the cost of the drug is. And these are small populations. When you think about when you get insurance, right? 
think of the bell curve, okay? When they're, you know, if you're an average person, it costs them, you know, the same amount, you know, as the next person. Well, there are some people that don't use any insurance, right? It doesn't cost them anything. Then on the other end of that, you know, they actually have actuarials. It's already embedded in your premiums. They, they've already, they know <laughs> that there's these gene therapies out there. They know that there's orphan drugs out there. They know, so it's part of it. And we've never, and, and this is the honest to goodness truth, have had a situation where we've had an insurance provider turn us down for coverage. I'm an insurance company mm -hmm. and I only care about mm -hmm. money. Let's just say, let's just say I'm, I'm this insurance company that it's only about money. I'm not even allowing anybody in my company to tell me any sad stories. You know, it's all money. Can an insurance company say we'd rather have this person die because that's cheaper? Because Gordon says that we can either pay this million up front or it's going to cost two million to have this person live out but we're hoping they die is that what they're thinking i'm not sure what they're thinking but i will tell you this that scenario it isn't far from you know some realities and i and i know that there have been patients denied certain cancer chemotherapies and you've you've probably seen it in the paper where they've had a petition and you know those are those are orphan drugs so i mean there are situations that where that's occurred but I tell you, there's a, a fail stop here that the manufacturers, if people can't afford it and they don't have insurance, the manufacturers actually will provide free drug for these people. And and we've and that's one of the things that RareMed does is we handle their free drug program for people that just don't have the ability to, to, to handle it. There's certain criteria you have to meet. But again, where we've had situations where the patient hasn't been able to afford it or doesn't have health care, I've never had a situation where the, the manufacturer didn't have the compassion to provide the drug for the patient. And it might even be something that the manufacturer and the insurance almost like, hey, we're going to buy this, but we're in this together almost, you know, to help this out. And so let's come up with something here besides throwing in there, let the person die as the best scenario. The PBMs and, and the insurance companies love rebates, right? You've heard of this whole rebate fiasco. It, you know, rebates haven't hit so much in the orphan drug. It, it's much more transparent. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's much, much more transparent. However, you know, when a PBM agrees or an insurance company agrees to pay for something, and let's say they're acting on behalf of a, um, an employer. So sometimes, you know, insurers for self-insured employers, you know, sometimes we don't know what number goes back to the employer. We just know what we get paid. Yeah. So there, there's still that intermediary. Gotcha. So the manufacturer... And rightfully so. You said that they have maybe a heart, but it also might be a heart because there's some workings in the background that you don't know all the things that are going on even between there. Exactly. We know they're going to come out ahead somehow on this or else they wouldn't be in yep. business. They wouldn't have any stockholders. Exactly. So, Gordon, I'm always a big fan of something that's called something like Panther and it's not called something like American Health, blah, blah, blah. We, yeah. we all think <laughs> yeah, we're getting yeah. so creative, but all those names sound the same. So yeah. walk me through the 
origins of Panther, the naming, were your sons involved? How did this come to be? And how did you make the bold move of doing a non-medical name in the age of everything either being a medical name or being some made-up name that you're hoping is not a uh, a name from a different country language yeah. that means something different <laughs> three years down the road, you know? Like some of the drug names, yeah. We had a company in Grand Rapids. It was named kind of a derogatory name for one of the ethnic groups. And mm. they didn't really know it because it was associated with their product. And uh, they ended up changing the name to something that was... Um, you can't go wrong with. So why was that? The naming, how'd you come up with that versus this oddball name or, or something that sounded too medical? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I had um, just semi-retired um, at a relatively early age. Um, I had just sold a company, the, the medical education company. And I was taking care of my wife and, and you know, we were down in Florida and uh, got a call um, from a couple of former students. Remember, I'm always associated with Pitt University. Um, and I probably have taught thousands of people. And, and that's why I love dealing with uh, teaching the youth uh, because that's where I get all of my drive and ambition and hope for the future, right? You know, it's just, it's contagious. So get a call and the, and this, the, the student, the former student said uh, they were in practice and they said, hey, we know you started this, you know, you were involved in the starting of this company, you know, at the very beginning, and we'd like to, to create a specialty pharmacy. And I, I kind of chuckled a little bit, and, um, but they were brilliant students and at the time, you know, back then. Pharmacy and, students or business students? Pharmacy students, and um, three of them. And I said, uh, you know, send me your business plan, because, I mean, that's one of the things I taught was business plans in medicine. Yeah. So I, you know, I got their business plan and it was about, you know, it was a different twist, but I read so much passion in their business plan that I said, you know, I'm going to fly back to Pittsburgh and we're going to, you know, we, we met at a, a little breakfast place called Eaton Park in a place called Squirrel Hill and we had breakfast and uh, I listened to them why they wanted to get back into the business, into this business. The business of... Specialty. Specialty drug, which they know you had sold one in late 80s. It, well, I was in, that's when I started in it. We sold it in the 90s. And they remembered that company. Yeah, because I, I taught them. You talked about it. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they knew it. So had breakfast with them, saw just the, the sheer talent and passion that just made me feel alive again. And uh, so I said, let's do it. You know, you guys, we're going to bootstrap this company. We're going to try to find a niche where it's not going to be the David and Goliath situation. Because remember, you know what's going on in the market out there. You know, the, the big guys are, you know, the payers are reducing how much they're paying pharmacies. Um, when you're buying from wholesalers, if you're not big, you're paying the highest price for everything. Yeah, right. Right. So, you know, every, the, the little guy's just getting squeezed out completely. I said, we've got to find a way. Um, to, to create a unique business model. Even in specialty, you needed to be unique. You couldn't just say we're specialty. We have to be unique in specialty, even more so. 100%. Because the margins were just driven out, um, you know, by the big guys. When you're both the payer as well as the pharmacy. <laughs> that doesn't work out? <laughs> well, it works out for them. Yeah, it does. And, you know, 
God bless them. And so we started this, um, you know, we bootstrapped this company. One of the, one of my uh, junior partners had a garage, if you would, up in uh, Beaver County, Pennsylvania. So it wasn't even close to an airport, but it was, you know, pretty much free rent because it was, uh, it was the bait. It was the downstairs of this building upstairs, a nun lived, um, who would (laughs) gather our mail, whether we knew it or not, um, and give it to us about every three or four days. But that's where we started and we bootstrapped. I personally lent the company money to get it going. You know, I promised them from the first day I started working with them, I would never dilute them. Whatever they're in on day one, I would ensure them the day we walked away from the company, they would have the same percentage ownership. Could have done that countless times. If you were shift, how could you have done that? In the operating agreement, right? It, the rules of how you run your business, because I was majority owner, I could have said, we need $5 million more million of a capital call, right? Well, if the guys don't have $5 million, I own a higher percentage of the company. It's almost like they would have like first rights of refusal or something, but then you would say, hey, if you don't have it, we got to do this. So, And, and that, would be the, that would be the unethical thing to do. But it happens all the time, right? Yeah, gotcha. Okay. These guys, you know, treated them like my sons and they, uh, they worked their butts off. And the first employee um, who's currently the president of Panther now learned every position in the company. He was the only employee for months. And, and you know, myself and another partner volunteered. We, we didn't take a salary whatsoever for years. And, and, you know, we grew our business regionally on the specialty side with very small margins, right? Um, it's not what we wanted to be, but we had to get payer contracts. We had to develop a relationship with the wholesaler to buy drugs. Kind of just kept you moving in the right direction, but you knew it wasn't your thing yet. Exactly. Then comes 2014. A friend um, who I had from the medical education world, you know, we did some very good things in terms of education for them. He was in the uh, pharmaceutical industry. He left a big company and went to work for one of these startups. It was me who called him. And I said, you know, would you be interested? And the rest is history. He took a chance on us. We had never distributed an orphan drug before that ever, but he knew um, through my reputation and, and integrity, he was willing to trust us. And we knocked it completely out of the park. You sort of knew this was coming from the other professor. Had your eyes in it a little bit. And then this person from the West Coast, he was coming up with the drug. You called him, you said. Yeah, I called him when he left Big Pharma and went to work for a rare pharma. And then you're like, okay, I know he went to work for rare. I also know that this pediatric went into effect. So this is kind of all coming together. It's coming together. Things don't happen by chance. I mean, you had to have Panther RX going for a few years without much profit for this, quote, chance to come along, right? Yeah, we were in a red for, for several years. And then the chance came. And what we saw, if you look in the FDA pipeline at phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials, there were an emerging number of new orphan drugs coming in phase one and phase two. All we needed was the opportunity. So you kind of had your eye out. Absolutely. This was an opportunity. See, I had a, I had a um, relationships in, in this industry, not only from Statlanders from before, but from many of the other companies I had. And trust me, 
the world of medicine is a very small world, okay? Um, and, and, you know, the key is, is, you know, if you've got a great reputation, which, you know, thank God I had, um, you know, people remember that. And that's what happened with this gentleman. And, and, you know, he gave us our break and the rest is history. But Panther came to answer your question. Um, the three students, they were all Pit Panthers. Pit Panthers. That came when you said the Panther Pit. You know, then I'm thinking about that then. And Panther was perfect because it was, um, first of all, it had a the feeling of a living thing. It, and it could be aggressive, but, you know, it was still a cat. And, you know, it was one where we felt that, you know, we put a little X after the R at the end of Panthers, which made it RX. Um, and we felt it was unique in the industry. No one else was doing that. And that's what we did. You mean having like a name versus one of these American medical something or other or or this name that no one's heard of before? Exactly. Exactly. And that's how Panther. So Panther was born out of the commonality between the four partners which all went back to uh, the university and, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, we were all Pitt Panthers. So you started this and then you were in the red. Did you think that break was going to come from more specialty, specialty like orphan? Or did you not know what that break was going to be? What else would it have been if it wasn't orphan? Well, we actually tried a couple different avenues, right? Really? So, yeah, if you think about it, who runs, you know, who manages all of specialty pharmacy? It's these big players. But there's another loosely knit group of people who could be a big player that never was. And that's this network of community pharmacies. Mm. So our thought was, one of the thoughts that we tried was, could we create this spoke and hub model yeah. where Panther would be the back end to all these community pharmacies where we could we could make every community pharmacy a specialty pharmacy. Um, but, you know, we tried it and um, it just let's just say uh, it didn't work because we just couldn't have the magnitude of purchasing and the margins weren't there to have two people in the business taking a cut from it. And trust me, it wasn't until Panther, because think of this, the unique thing about Panther and RareMed is we don't go through wholesalers anymore. It's direct from the manufacturer. Is it because these companies are too small to go with the wholesaler or they just don't need the wholesaler anymore? Don't need a wholesaler anymore if you only have one or two or three pharmacies distributing the product. You just don't need it. Why send it to a big distributor to distribute it to everybody, but they're only going to turn around and send it to one or two, exactly. two or three pharmacies? Exactly. So, you know, when I was thinking about the rare market, I said, not only did we need to change putting specialty back, special back in specialty, we need a new business model. And the new business model was working directly with the manufacturer, okay, where we're cutting, we, we're not dealing with a wholesaler. Because remember, if you're a small purchaser through a wholesaler, you're paying the highest prices, right? Now, if you're dealing with the manufacturer, it's a different story, right? The second thing is when you're dealing with payers, um, if if you're dealing, if you have a life-saving medication and you're the only place you can get it, um, it, it's not in their best interest to turn patients down. Um, and so it, it we changed the business model. 
What other model, you've talked about the independent pharmacy one not working out. What other, were there any other ideas that you were say, all right, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta come up with a few of these now. Yeah. And, and you know, one of them, it's called 340B. I know enough about that, but not enough to tackle it in the show yet. For the listeners, you know, 340B is uh, where they, manufacturers are required to give special pricing, heavily discounted pricing to institutions that have what's called a disparate population, which means that you know they're they're um, financially disadvantaged, right? Manufacturers are required to almost you know sometimes up 60, 70 percent discounts on drugs um, to let's say this hospital um, to serve the underserved. It's a financially right thing to do, and this is by legislation. Sure. So here our thought back then was as well, okay, let's let's get into this business. But then all of a sudden we actually did get into the business and and actually we're doing financially well. But I, I'm telling you, Mike, it just didn't feel right. Thus my reason not for doing it yet in this end. Yeah, it just you know, we we were making money on something that was intended for just patients that were disadvantaged, but you're making money on other people, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, we just said we didn't want our names associated with it. Right. Um, and we thought it was going to be a short lived business. It still exists out there and people are still making money on it. But I tell you, um, you know, it's kind of like rebates and PBMs, you know, someday transparency will come where, um, you know, I don't know if everyone's doing it with what the intent of the law is. Yeah, that's as deep as I got because I was actually going to have a 340B person on the show that helped companies, you know, set up and yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I wrote her back and I said, you know, thanks, sorry about this, but I think if I have this on the show, I'm going to have to do like both sides of this. And I think I yeah. need somebody who yeah. is more maybe on the political side than somebody who has trying to make their business work yep. for this. And I said, I don't think I can do you justice. You know, I don't know enough about it, but I know there's some controversy on it. Yeah. And, and that controversy um, caused us not only to do away with that business, we could have actually sold the business, but we didn't even feel that we, we should profit from selling the business. We actually gave the business away. Let's get this out under our name and give it to someone, someone yeah, else. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and actually, there were some community pharmacists um, that we knew that we thought were legitimate, ethical people that would do at least a good job with. And we still thought it was going to be short term, but they're still doing the business, which is you know good and God bless them. But uh, you know, someday there, there's a day of reckoning coming for 340B2. Great intent, intended for all the right reasons, but there's there's just too much money being made. Are there some pharmacies that maybe? can get these drugs to the underserved where the hospital couldn't. And that's why they're getting those yeah. prices. Is there like a good, there's like there a is good a, like there idea is. behind it there that, that, that got abused. There right? is. When it becomes a business <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, business people get their hands on it. Suddenly the intent gets lost. There's loopholes and things. Yeah. And it's all about taking a product that they can purchase for very little 
Yeah. And selling it to as many people as they can. Was the intent of that kind of distribution, was it to get it into disadvantage, but yes. but now it's gone further than that? It outlived or outextended its true purpose kind of thing. I think there are instances of that, and there are also instances of people, the right people benefiting from it. But we don't know. We just knew it wasn't us. So we tried the 340B thing. We tried the um, specialty, what we called at retail. Um, and there, there were several other things, but it wasn't until 2014 where we saw this game changer coming. When you said you went in the red, Gordon, did that take longer than you thought? Or were you prepared to get in the mix? Because like you say, you knew you needed the associations. You knew that this wasn't something you could, what is it, turnkey? You couldn't do this overnight. You needed the background. How long were you willing to, how many years did you think you needed of background? And when would you have said, all right, guys, we've been doing this for 15 yeah. years now and we don't need this much background. When did you need that break to happen? Was it like... Two or three years, you knew you something better come up? Well, you know, we were probably in it several years um, before we turned to black. And it was because the, you know, the hard work of my partners and, you know, the um, people that we brought on where we were able to build a regional business. But, you know, I'll tell you, you know, when do, when do you call it quits? Um, you know, I haven't always been associated with businesses that <laughs> made money. Um, you know, any entrepreneur, um, you know, it's not about all the successes you have. It's, you know, sometimes about things that just didn't work out. And, uh, you know, with this one, at least, you know, we had the inkling even after year one that regionally we could do, um, we seem to be doing okay. My, our primary goal was to pay the one pharmacist salary and, and, you know, break even. And I think we did that in year two and a half, something like that. Gotcha. And so it's not like you were in the red with like 30 no. pharmacists that no. you were trying to like, like these companies no. like Amazon takes losses no. on. No, You were losing, but you knew you needed to do that a little bit to get your, yep. to get your base on this. Exactly. If you and your acquaintance got together from the West Coast and said, let's do this. If you started at that point, you would have had to wait another year or yeah. two for you to get your pharmacy in gear. Oh, so you God. needed to be there. Well, it's not only the pharmacy in gear. Keep in mind. To do anything on a national basis, you've got to get licensed in all 50 states, as well as D.C. and Puerto Rico. Right. First of all, it's not inexpensive. And secondly, it's a regulatory nightmare, but it's a barrier to entry. So during this during this three-year period, we were in the process of getting licensed everywhere. Right. And that's a requirement for any national business you do. So that's what we did. In, in many states, there is reciprocation. In some states, you have to sit for the state board. Even if you're in Pennsylvania and let's say um, Texas, you, you have to go down and take that state board to get licensed in Texas to distribute to Texas. So we did that. We did that. Um, so it was, you know, it wasn't an e necessarily an easy process, but it was one we felt if we were going to do anything of magnitude, um, this was some of the blocking and tackling that needed to happen. Someone had to take a test down in Texas. Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. One of the pharmacists. Yeah, yeah, and most of them keep in mind, once you're a pharmacist, you know, you're the basic um, science part of that, um, that's that's called your NABplex. That's, that's the biggest part of the test. Gotcha, yeah. The part of the test in most of these places you have to take, even though there's a couple exceptions, 
is the law part. Oh, I gotcha. So we had to go down and get law licenses. Gotcha. Hey, note to self, Gordon, if you're taking notes there, remember not to hire me for any of that for any of your companies <laughs> taking the test. <laughs> this isn't a job interview for me, but just make sure you don't hire me for that. I can gotcha. tell you that's going to be gotcha. a that's going to be a loser on your charts. <laughs> yeah. So when you got this going, you knew you might be in the red for a year or two while you got these licenses going. Yes. Well, in fact, even if you had a national idea, it wasn't going to come to fruition until you got all the license and all that stuff anyways. Exactly. To get into insurance, um, you know, you can get, you can enter into these agreements where you can get access to payers, um, not necessarily at good rates, but you can get access to payers. Um, however, to get Medicaid licenses, okay, oh, you have to have a patient in that state and actually have a prescription in hand in order to get your Medicaid license. Mm. And it was, I mean, it, it wasn't until we had this opportunity in, you know, 2014 going into 2015, where we were distributing to all 50 states, where not only did we have 50 licensures, but we had payer relationships everywhere. Because think about it. Why would a, a pharmaceutical, a biopharma manufacturer ever trust you if you weren't able to handle everything? Right. Everywhere. And that's, that's what we had to have. You can't do one. It's like, well, why now they got to basically start over, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So we had to have that. That's interesting. You said they have to have a script in hand. Is that like Medicaid's not going to deal with you until we know someone needs it. We're not just going to set these up for the hell of it. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what they try to prevent. Now we'll get a letter in the mail that says, um, you know, your, your Medicaid status will be considered once you have a prescription. Hmm. So we knew it was just a function of formality. Yeah. And once you get that prescription, send it to the state, it all goes through and, and everything's good. So now you're a licensed provider in that state. So, you know, there's all these barriers. Um, and then you've got, you know, the big guys, you know, breathing down your neck. Um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're like, at first, you know, Panther is a nobody. Yeah. Then it was, who is Panther? Right. Then it was what is this thing, Panther? And then all of a sudden they were like, Panther. You know, it, it just changes over time where your credibility became established, not only in the business model you had with manufacturers, but quite frankly, it, the fact that, you know, we were kicking butt in patient satisfaction. Pa patients loved us. Um, and, and that's because, you know, we didn't have all the phone trees everyone else had where you called and press six for this and five for that. We had a live person. 90% of the time you dealt with the same specialist that knew your disease every time. Um, so our, we, there was an independent entity that did um, patient satisfaction and you had to pay to be part of this. Um, we won three years in a row, the National Patient Satisfaction uh, Award. Um, and we had, they're called NPS scores. Um, we had, our scores were in the 90 some percent of patients loving us. You know better than I do, but when we were at the first level of specialty, there was probably some of these things, you know, if, if you go back 20 years, you know, or 30 years, and all the big people come in and they start making cuts and we're going to have a phone operator versus a specialist and all this stuff. And then it's like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We might've been doing this, you know, 20 years ago, but we're just repeating this, but now we got to call it specialty specialty. Exactly. Exactly. When this thing started then taking off, was there ever like a holy blank moment where you're like, 
wow. I mean, did did this exceed your expectations? Yeah, it, it did um, by far. And, and you know, I, I call it you know, you know, blessings galore. I was at a point in my career where Panther wasn't about money. Panther was about creating a new uh, model where we could actually, where pharmacists could use what they know to benefit patients and nurses, because um, we had pharmacists, nurses, doctors, et cetera. But we want to do something where we can make a difference. And rare diseases is to have a company where you can make a difference where you give a life-saving drug to a family that actually allows their child to live or allows their wife to live or changes their it, it is beyond any words uh, of, of value and that's you know that's what made panther special um, that's what gave panther a heart um, because everyone who came to work for us didn't come for a job they came because they knew they could make a difference and it, it was the coolest thing in the world my junior partners, um, they had never been involved in a business on the national scale. So they didn't even know these roadblocks existed. So they just they just either crushed right through them or ran right around them. My wife's a teacher. I, I love teachers, but oh my gosh, talk about a group of people that love to sit in the teacher's lounge and bitch about stuff. You guys didn't have that because no one knew what to bitch about. No, no. And, and that's that's what the beauty was is you know, we hired young, ambitious talent. Um, you know, what I didn't do for the first um, seven years of the company was hire old executives that only knew how to do it the way they did it. Yeah, right. Okay? Yeah. Um, if you look at our values, one of the ones that we embraced the most was, you know, disruption. And, and these, you know, I give all the credit for Panther by the team that surrounded me. I had such an incredible leadership team, and, and it was about taking, um, not putting the pieces of the puddle, puzzle together the normal way, but sometimes you know, I would bring in talent that no one, no one even saw the value in that talent, and my God, they just paid off a hundredfold. Doesn't always work, but it was just incredible. One of my, one of my executives, uh, probably the most recent hire that I had there, this individual was associated with university prior to that had a career in he was a senior member in the police force and, and prior to that had had some other unique thing he was one of the best leaders that i ever came across but he never had an exposure to pharmacy medicine specialty pharmacy but i knew he was so bright he came on and just caught fire and he today is one of the reasons why panther um, went from in the last two years, you know, we were probably, you know, doing, you know, in the eight, nine hundred million dollar range. And, you know, in the end, we were doing several billion dollars. And it was a, an incredible, uh, you know, it was because of talent like that and hiring to culture, not hiring a resume. When you get your first national contract exclusive, it's it's a blessing in luck mm -hmm. when you get your second one yeah it's like wow you know this this is feasible and quite frankly is when we got our third contract uh when i said you know what we've got a legitimate business here. yeah and we grew that to dozens of contracts um and and it that's when it occurred you know and, and we were pontificating back in 2017 
Um, and, and the guys looked at me like I, I had four heads. I said, you know what, guys, by 2020, we're going to be a billion dollar company. And, and they were like, you are out of your mind. You are out of your mind. But if you if you think about it, these products are so expensive. No one's doing what we're doing. Yeah. All we got to do is execute. And, and if you do it, you know, it's going to happen. And, and that's what happened. When you took that little break and you kind of thought that maybe your career was, maybe you would just be smoking a cigar and, and pontificating from, you know, your lounge chair yeah. on a personal level, was there any challenging stuff? Like, I didn't think I had to do this crap anymore. Or was it all okay? Well, let me tell you the, the honest to goodness truth. I, I attribute Panther to one thing, and that was my wife. I was, I was semi-retired for three years in Florida. Three, not three years, three months in Florida. It felt like three years, maybe. <laughs> three months. It, it really did because, you know, the, the whole concept was, you know, I'm going to come down here, enjoy it with my wife, and, and we were going, you know, we were going to boat and fish and all this. I suddenly realized that there was no peer group here. Right. Everyone that would, would have been a peer was, you know, two or three decades older than Yeah. Me. You know, most of them were golfing and, you know, and. So all of a sudden, you know, my wife came to me and said, you know, I think you have more to give mm. to the world than you've given. How old were you at the time? Oh, wow. God, I would have been like 50. Yeah. And these guys are all 65 or whatever, or 60 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, actually, I was 48. I remember. So she came to you and said you had more to give. Yep. And, and there were two parts to that. Part of it was the giving part. The other part was the fact that I was giving too much to her. Oh. Um, so too much of my time to her. She didn't like that? Too much of a good thing can be not a good thing. So She wanted to get rid of you for some time, right? Yeah. Well, you know, she, she had her own life. Yeah. She, you know, she was... She, she had her own things and, you know, I was just constantly around. And so she just gently encouraged me to go up and meet these, my former students. And she said, you know, let, let's do this. And, and I said, okay. And that's, that's the honest to God's truth. And it was because of my wife, Beth, wow. um, that I got back into this. And as soon as I got back into it, it was, it, I'm telling you, it was like, you know, I've I've never done drugs, but I imagine it's like the feeling of doing coke. That's great. You know, it's just this high you get of just you know putting a business back together and seeing people succeed. And the most rewarding thing, aside from serving our patients, was filling the parking lot. Yeah, um, just seeing the cars fill the parking lot. Yeah. And Mike, we got to a point with Panther where we were so we had we had so many employees. I had to hire a valet. Wow. Um, because either I had to transport people um, from another parking lot and get buses and deal with insurance and all that, or I had to get a parking valet and double and triple park people. How many people were around? Well, you know, a couple hundred. But, you know, a couple hundred was a lot for, for what we were doing. Um, you know, it didn't require thousands of people, right? Because remember, yeah. small populations and yeah. high touch. You know, it wasn't um, automated. That was all on one building slash yep. campus, right? I mean, you didn't have like yep. something across town or anything like that. They were all right there. No, no. Actually, when we when we expanded where we had this issue with parking, I did um, get another building, um, and the building was you know five minutes from this current building, and we built a brand new facility. And then we got a satellite facility or duplicate facility in Ohio so that if Western Pennsylvania was to blow up, 
you know, we had to be on a different power grid. So, you know, a lot of this wasn't about necessarily needing room, but it was about reassuring our partners that we had the capacity to survive no matter what. Yeah. You got to start thinking about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there was, when COVID hit, we had no choice, right? That there is no such thing as shutting down. We stop serving patients. People get sick and, and, and get harmed because they can't get their drug anywhere else. Were you CEO during this time? Was that your designation? Yeah, my, my, I was CEO chairman the whole time. And you went from there to selling. Yep. If you didn't sell, would there have been a time where you said, I don't, I don't want to do this day-to-day stuff or would that have been okay for another five years or whatever? You know, Mike, I, I was so blessed because my philosophy and leadership you know, was very much like Steve Jobs. I hire good people and I, I expect them to do their job, right? Um, I'm not a micromanager. So I was able to be CEO of two companies from Florida for a company in Pennsylvania. You know, it's commonplace now with COVID and everyone being decentralized. Well, back then it wasn't. You were still on Florida. Yeah, whole time. Bothering your wife down there. Yeah. Just having more to do so she could go and have some fun. Just because you had no friends down there doesn't mean she has to stay home with you all the time. Exactly. Exactly. So I was, uh, but I was traveling back and forth to Pittsburgh, family still in Pittsburgh and, and friends still in Pittsburgh. Um, but I was, you know, just being much more, um, engaged and, um, yeah. And it was a situation where, um, uh, it just worked out perfectly, but it was one of, of being virtual and having a team on the ground that changed over time. I had, I had the most fluid organizational chart you'll ever see. And it changed very often. Um, but I never had a president, never, I wasn't into giving people, it wasn't about people titles. Um, I wanted people to, you know, to, to embrace the responsibilities that they had not grow into something they thought it was going to be. So, um, I, you know, the whole time, um, it wasn't until December that we actually had a president and the president was appointed when I transitioned to less responsibility and it went over to the new company. Gotcha. Um, but I had general managers before that. I had executive vice presidents before that, gotcha. and, et cetera. So these people ran the day by day. I was a 24 seven person. They could call me anytime. I never, I hated scheduled calls, hated them. If something was going on, call me, tell me what's going on, text me. That way at any point in my life, I know everything's good unless I hear from something. I did that, not from the best mental position mine was always like i don't want to go back to a bunch of people bitching at me and have this bigger bigger thing but yours came from a better angle but you're right if you have a problem let me know if i don't hear from you i'm assuming that we're doing okay absolutely and texting was my mode of communication for 80 percent of communication and short text they had to get used to that (laughs) yeah Uh, i mean like two word text yeah because you know at first they, they thought i was you know i was trying to be intimidating or something. Um, but it was just, it's just a function of efficiency. So, um, you know, they got used to that. Um, you know, we got in a manner of reporting where they actually began learning to just, they began being able to predict what I was going to say. So it was just a, it was a self-directed group of incredibly talented people. Once they know your method, then they're almost checking off on you they're kind of looking at you and you kind of give a figurative wink you know or a head nod and there yeah. and there they go yeah. and if all all five of them agreed on a subject 
Uh, I don't know of one time when I disagreed because if you have five brilliant minds yeah. that understand something that's going on better than I do, I'm not going to question. Yeah, it. exactly. Exactly. So Gordon, I go on your, um, well, let me put it this way. I look up your name online and we have all these entrepreneur of the year awards. Congratulations mm -hmm. on that. Thank you. Here's what I want to ask you. If you, or when you have your book come out, what are the chapters that you would have written that you think are maybe a little bit, maybe you didn't invent those methods, but you don't see them in every book, like look people in the eye and shake their hand and call them by their first name and all that kind of stuff. If you were writing a book, what things, without repeating the cliches, what would your chapter say? Or what would your list be? I love this, Mike. One is approach. Um, you know, we had extremes of approaches. You know, the, the junior partners were all about getting the work done. And I was all about, this was a poker game, okay? And let me tell you what the difference in poker and poker tournament, okay? Poker is what most small entrepreneurs are about. It's about winning on a daily basis, winning a bad deal, winning just, just a confined win. A poker tournament, you're playing with chips that you're willing to reinvest based upon what's, you know, what your opportunity is to win the next hand, right? That different approach made all the difference in the world. I had a very high risk tolerance. I, and, and since I was senior partner, you know, we made the decisions of constantly reinvesting in the company because, you know, I wanted the partners to do well, but it was all about building this company for something really big. And it was the difference about playing a poker hand versus being in a tournament. And the tournament is having the long, having the vision of seeing that you can build something really big. Because a tournament, you can lose a game and still be back in the tournament, right? Is that what that is? Exactly. Exactly. Or you, you know, you could lose, you know, a hand, you know, you may be down a few chips, but you know, the next hand it's about the game versus a whole night of poker or the tournament. Exactly. Exactly. You know, that was the story about approach and, and risk tolerance. A lot of people think entrepreneurs are risk takers to win the one game. And if they don't, they'll lose. And I think a lot of people don't understand that entrepreneurs, they don't like uncalculated risk. They like risk, but it's got to be calculated. And in the end, you want to win that tournament. You're not going to throw it all away in one hand. And if it doesn't exactly. go, you're going to go live on the street. 100%. Example, the 340B discussion we had right? Yeah. It, you know, it wasn't worth it. I'll give you another example. It, you know, the PPP money. Yeah. We didn't know what was happening at the beginning of COVID. We applied for the PPP money. We were awarded the PPP money, uh, you know, to the tune of, of, of a lot of money. Yeah. Could I in all conscious the and keep that money knowing that my business was still doing okay? No, we turned it back in. So that's the poker tournament approach of saying, hey, I, I don't want to just win this one hand or take this money off the table. It's about reputation and integrity. What's the next chapter on? It's being detached. And what I mean by being detached is because I lived in Florida, I did not get involved in the daily drama associated with my team. Wait a minute. You're saying there's team drama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The thing I dislike the most about. Yeah. I'm sure you've had your fill of that. But. Being detached allows me to look at things more objectively, mm -hmm. allows me to look at if there's a squabble, if there's a territory issue, if there's um, something that 
has more emotion than fact to it. Um, by being in Florida and not being there all the time, yeah, it made a world of difference. You're weighing ideas, possibilities, directions versus weighing that Sally looked at you this way or Bob looked at you this way. And you have this feeling of this net. It's like, no, you're still going to weigh all this stuff, but it's going to be detached into its objectivity. It, now, it might be some subject, and I mean, a little bit different for people and things, but you're not looking at expressions or relationships or all that. It's just objectivity. No, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that helped immensely. Hmm. Um, you know, you have some issues with a business, and I'll, I'll give you an example of this. When you start with three young, ambitious people, you find out that companies often outgrow talent. And what I mean by that is somebody may be a good general manager when you have you know, 30 employees, but when you have 150 employees, it just might not be the right person. So we constantly, I juggled to find the right fit for where people are. And, um, and it only was because of that objectivity. It also was the fact that you know, I think if I had too much of an emotional attachment to people, um, I wouldn't go in and walk in and say, hey, Joe, you're no longer the general manager today. You're going to take over sales um, and, and because all of a sudden that emotion isn't there, um, you know, and they get used to that. They did. And, and they ended up benefiting it in the long run. I use that in my in my store example where, you know, it seems like employees come in and they can make decisions for themselves when it's just like, hey, this this new job I might get, I'm putting my two weeks notice in because that's a 51% better. You know, your pharmacy is still 49, but this is 51. Unfortunately, managers and owners, we wait till something's like 95 crappy and 5% good. And we finally say, all right, we've got to, we got to do something finally. But yep. in, in your, in your mind, yours could be 49 good, 51 bad, or it could be 70 good 30 bad but you just yeah. have a hunch yeah that something's gonna work better and by being undetached you can call those hunches out where you might not if you just went to the baseball game the night before or something like that yep yep and mike you know the other two chapters you know one would be you know i did this before i, I was there at the beginning of when specialty launched this was again specialty launching again right okay so this this wasn't anything new yeah but what we had to do is to de define this new industry. So we actually wrote the accreditation standards, got the accreditation bodies to recognize rare pharmacy, published the articles to actually create something new. But I'm telling you, customer service and providing clinical care and good care for patients is nothing new. That's the recipe. You know, it was, it's, it's all about, um, I'm not an efficiency guy. You know, the guys who, you know, who focus on dri driving every nickel out of something, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all about if your patients on a national level are telling you you're the best, the manufacturers will come to you and the payers will work with you. It's that simple. That was like the next chapter. And the final thing is focus. Um, once you find something that is going to be your bread and butter, detach yourself from everything else. So when we found out we were rare and we knew that this was going to be a, an incredible opportunity for us, you know, we divested of all the other business and just focused on rare. Even though there were other opportunities that came that could have provided margin to the business, we said no. 
at first, 2012, you weren't rare yet. You were just Panther. We were Panther Specialty. Panther Specialty. And then yeah. you made an official name change at some point? Yeah, we made a name. Yeah, 2018. Panther Rare. Yep. You changed it right over to that. Yep. Yep. And and that's when we relaunched our, uh, you know, the website. And, and then one year after that, um, we proposed to the accrediting bodies um, a new designation for pharmacy. And that was to ACHC and, and URAC. Um, and they, you know, we work with them to create the new standards. When did you officially launch Rare Med, uh, Gordon? I believe it was 2017. We actually had a company like this in Panther. Um, but our manufacturer partners were nervous to use this hub in Panther. How do you send all these scripts in to be sent out? It's kind of like our previous story about the P payer PBM, especially. It, they said, we can't do that. So if you create a separate company that's not named Panther, but has the same culture, has the same focus, on, you do all that, we'll come. And they came. It's growing faster than Panther did. How separate is it physically? Is it a separate building, separate business, separate area, all this stuff, right? 100% separate. Separate, separate payroll, separate operating separate system, separate. Is it separate buildings? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's totally separate location. So if you look at the websites, um, you know, we have Rare Meds probably 10 minutes from Panther. The manufacturer said, ah, do what you want. We don't care. Would you have made it that separate or would you have maybe cut some corners by not separating as much as you are? You know, I know in my heart, I would have, um, you know, followed all the rules for the appropriate um, separating of scripts. Um, but, you know, there's precedence, Mike. Um, I think it was, I believe it was um, Diplomat had its own hub internally and everyone questioned. And I didn't want that same stigma of, you know, that, what is it, the fox in the hen house. Um, so we created it separately. Now, for the first year, we had shared services in terms of, you know, business things, payroll, accounting, that type of stuff. But after the first year and a half, we um, we transitioned completely over. And actually, I took a, you know several of the talent at Panther who wanted a new challenge, brought them over to Rare Med. You know, they same culture, et cetera. So that, that's what born there. Do you have much company swapping? No, it actually be, it became a problem about a year or two ago where we'd post a, a position at one company and not even it's not even that it was a you know a career development thing um it, it just became really you know the grass is always greener type thing um so it became very disruptive so what we had is we required people to notify you know panther that they were interviewing at rare med or rare med they were interviewing at panther um but today because they're separate companies um, we literally have an agreement not to recruit and they have an agreement not to recruit from us. How many people at Rare Med now about Gordon? Over a hundred. Wow. And that's growing faster. No, it's growing faster. If you compare even in 2014, when we had our first orphan opportunity at the very end, it didn't launch until 15. So if you look at those three years, the growth of the first three years of, uh, of Rare Med's even faster. Forgive my forgetfulness here, but... When we were talking rare med, 
my distinction in my head was thinking that it was using rare med to get more distribution sites for the manufacturers. Right. But I forget where the commercial versus non-commercial part came in. Well, think about this. Um, you, you're a manufacturer and you have decided you want three specialty pharmacies in your network, right? Yeah. Um, so now you have to select a hub who basically makes sure that the scripts are payable and make sure that, you know, the prior auths are done and it goes to, and it's separated to the pharmacies. But now where does the free drug come from? You know, cause there is a free drug program with every drug almost. So it, it, you, you give favoritism to one of the pharmacies. So we decided to make it Switzerland and that's what RareMed does. So we do nothing, you know, we do the, the free drug program for them. You know, we have all licenses but we don't deal with payers, no payers. How many other specialty pharmacies are you associated with RareMed? Oh, probably, I mean, you know, 10 or 12. Um, and you do the free stuff. Right, right. And keep in mind, the manufacturer selects what specialty pharmacies are gonna be in that network. They go through that same RFP process, but it, it's once they're selected and we're the hub, then we're the ones who, you know, we work and set up rules of how the prescriptions get to these other pharmacies. You know, is it physician, you know, physician preference, patient preference, payer preference? And then once there's no preference, is it uh, we round robin them? All right. So, Gordon, have you learned your lesson? <laughs> is, is this in your blood now, maybe for another? Um, how old are you now? I am 59. Okay, is this in your blood for another 20 years at this pace? Do you like this pace or will this slow down? No, I love this pace. Uh, and as a matter of fact, um, we're starting a new business. Um, Wonderful. You know, on top of RareMed. It, it's kind of like that thrill of always having something else. And now, and now we're looking abroad um, of trying to take some of the things we've learned here and doing things in other countries. Um, it, it's, it's just exciting. I, you know, I love the thrill of seeing young people succeed. Uh, there's nothing more. And, and Mike, one of the biggest thrills I have now, I, my, both of my sons I work with now, and neither of them are in medicine. They're both business people. They both work for RareMed. Wow, that's awesome. I recruited one from Wall Street. Um, he worked there for six years. Um, and I recruited one who was running the, uh, uh, he was the controller for the Miami hub uh, for American Airlines. One is running, uh, you know, business, the finance end, and the other one, the other one who came from Wall Street is running business development. And you still give them like two word answers from Florida? Well, they have a boss. So, which <laughs> is not you. <laughs> you know, that that's the key. Right. <laughs> and, and never undermine their boss, who is the president, who's the general manager of it. That is a huge key. That's, that's it, a big it thing. It really is because, you know, I, I, I know what a talent they are and what the, but having sons report directly to, you know, have this family thing, it can cloud your judgment and it's not a good thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You, that's a huge part of your belief. There. Yep. I think you'll be doing this for another, as long as you uh, foresee. Yeah, I, I absolutely will. Um, you know, I, brings you life. I tasted what it was like to be, um, you know, to have time on my hands. And let me tell you what happens when you have time on your hands, Mike. Yeah. Even in three months, the phone calls slow down. The emails stop, the text stop. And, and suddenly you start wondering, you know, you, you start looking for your identity again and for that thrill. 
and it's no longer there. Um, yeah. It's a part of my life that I'll never give up. My wife and I, we talk, and I've had the pharmacy basically on my mind for, I'm 54. Mm -hmm. I mean, since I was 14, I haven't had the responsibility I have now, but basically for mm -hmm. 30 years, I don't know what life is like without that on my mind. Yeah. And so when I get away from this, I've never experienced even 24 hours in the last 30 years with this not on my mind, for better or for worse. And so I'm not making any plans. When I sell someday, I would like to get away maybe for, <laughs> I'm serious, like three days or three weeks yeah. or three months like yourself. Yeah. And my guess is after not having this on my mind for three days, I might be ready to jump into something as soon as that. I've just never had this off my mind. I've seen enough people do what you do to say, give me three days before I make any, you know, three months. I, I'm, I know I'll need something or what I think, I don't know. What do I know? I don't know. I'm telling you, it was one of the most refreshing. It's like rebooting your computer. You always have this idea of what retirement's going to be. And then you're suddenly there and it's not like what you thought it was. And I mean, you know, it's nice to be in a nice place and, and do nice things. But, you know, even I even go on vacation, I get bored. You know, it's, it's true. Um, I, I recommend the break. Um, but I'll tell you, once you do it, um, it you realize that uh, the thrill is uh, what you live for. Thank God there's ways to do that now, right? I mean, 30 years ago, you couldn't do this. I mean, you'd have to move back up to there and do this and then take vacations again and stuff. So we're very fortunate that we're living in a time where you can find something that's valuable, yet still do a lot of different stuff. You want to hear something that's funny, Mike? Um, we, we actually, um, you know how people kind of accumulate their PTO and, you know, it's, it's, it's almost... We actually, for our for our senior managers uh, and above, uh, we adopted what several other companies did. We we gave unlimited PTO, unlimited. Do you know our use of PTO went down twenty two percent? And it people were never happier because they never had to you know think I have to use it or burn it or or you know it 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 just giving people the independence to do their job was the right thing to do and giving them the freedom of mind to say, if you need to take time off, you have it. In a company like yours, it'd be kind of neat to say, you have to go, but you have to turn off the switch. And unfortunately, we probably can't do that for people. If you could give the gift of switch turning off to your guys, you would, because they're, everybody's still kind of on, you know, even when they're gone and for better or for worse for a company. But it'd be nice if we could turn all the, I don't mean the phone switch, I mean just the switch of your brain, you know? <laughs> No question about it. But not for long, but yeah, not for long yeah. or else you go crazy, right? You do, you do. Keeps you alive, you know? Well, it, it's the right challenges. And, and when you put together a team and, you know, what they quickly realized, Mike, is uh, to not come to me with things that they don't want me, that they don't want me to intervene. It, I, I explain it to them. When you bring me something, I'm a solver. I'm a fixer. And I try to fix things. Be careful what you ask for, because you know I, I I will fix things. There will be bodies. There will be you know repercussions. There'll be. But I I use the analogy. I said sometimes it's like using a sledgehammer for a thumbtack. So it takes time for them to understand what size of a problem to bring to you, and they learn that it's just my natural disposition to try to help, 
And, you know, I don't use, I cross, I cut across company lines. I don't follow protocol. You know, I, you know, and, and sometimes fixing the problem causes them more issues than not fixing the problem. So they learn real quickly. Um, and it was a, it was a really, uh, it's a fun thing to teach people what problems to bring to you. Um, they, they quickly learn that process. With my kids, we have a little cottage 30 minutes from town and we go up there and I told them a long time ago, I said, guys, when I'm out here watching you, because sometimes we'd had some little kids out there too, we have to watch them. I said, when I'm out here watching you, if one of you screams that somebody's doing something to you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you're all coming out. You're all coming out for about 10 minutes so you can sit and decide how this should have kept mm -hmm. going and so on. I'm not pulling one of you out of the water because you're mm -hmm. tattling on them. So before you decide to scream, decide if it's worth all of you coming out because it's going to happen again and again. And so that reminds me of that. It's like if they're going to scream yeah. for Gordon, they better know they're all coming out of the water for a while until things get settled out. And they learn to solve their own problems. They do. It, it, it's amazing. It's amazing. Hey, Gordon, great talking to you. Great talking to you, Mike. Thank you so much. Wow. Thanks for your time. That was a fascinating time for me. And so I really appreciate it and continued best wishes. Thank you, man. Anything I can do for you, let me know. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Gordon. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes. Thank you.